Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Hey, bro. It's Russo'sBrand.com. Get the real shoot for the most controversial personality in pro wrestling, Vince Russo. Stevie Richards Fitness. Hey, don't you think it's time for a band new you? Head over to StevieRichardsFitness.com and join the SRF resistance today. ProWrestlingTees.com. Get the coolest merchandise from your favorite independent pro wrestling talent worldwide. Head over to ProWrestlingTees.com and support indie wrestling today. The following program is presented by the HTM Podcast Network. And you feel filled with frustration, treachery, with no documentation. Disease led through Lloyd. Will you witness is no one testifies? Well, I'm the cure to your disease. Rage burns a brand new degree. You train your mouth with mistrust, now it's time to push. Fuck you and all your insecurities. Be must taste and test my abilities. Every creature dug your hole too deep, stretching the walls. No escape, it's too steep. Friday, May 22nd, 2020. Happy Memorial Day weekend, everybody. You are tuned in to Running With The Bulls, Episode 5, the last episode, presented by the HTM Podcast Network, HittingTheMarks.com, and Hameen Media Online, HackerHameen.Podbean.com. My name is Jargo. I'll be your host for the day, but let's welcome in my tag team partner. He's the man on the wing. He's the guy who likes his women just like KFC. Finger licking. Ladies and gentlemen, he's Ricky Pippen. Rick, welcome back to the show. All aboard! We gotta be shipping. It's me, it's me, it's Ricky Pippen. I think I actually had a better one than you this week. I, you did, man. It, you threw me off there. The whole thing was out of key. I was ready to come in with my last one. I figured since it was the last one, I'd actually acknowledge the whole Ricky Pippen and Jake gimmick, you know. I, I've got an excuse. My back is all tightened up this week. But I, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna work through it. I'm gonna work through it. Had that dunk to start the show, and it's all downhill from there. So Huckleberry, I guess, uh, you know, every week I've been going through and I've been trying to find like one quote, and, and that's what I'll, I'll name the episode. Right? This week it was easy. Reggie Miller gave it to me early in the show. Don't ever talk trash to Black Jesus. That was the highlight of of both of these episodes to me. Um, Before we talk about episode 9 and 10, we've got to talk about the format of this show. Um, Because this week's show was very, very different than episodes 1 through 8. There was a lot more basketball on this week's show. Did you notice that? Uh, I think, you know, that was by detail. It brings everything. This is truly what it was about. Well, I found out what what brought everyone together here. I, no, that's not what it. That's not it at all. Um, I listened to an interview with uh, the filmmaker Jason Ayer, and episodes nine and ten weren't done yet. They were anticipating this being launched a couple months down the road. Still, they were still editing this thing as it was being put together, editing the whole thing, mind you, over Zoom. Right, Because you can't get all the editors and the assistant directors and the director and everybody in the room at the same time. They're trying to do this thing over technology thanks to the coronavirus. And episodes 9 and 10, they just they felt very, very different than episodes 1 through 8 to me. 
Okay, so the, uh, that's the the excuse, the reasoning that they are presenting to us. You know what that screams to me? You're going to have to buy these director cuts, these extended episodes. Well, and we kind of had that. And I, and I and I gladly will. Yeah, absolutely. And we kind of had that Wednesday night, too, when all of a sudden they're like, Game 6, the movie. And it was like, well, wait, no, why weren't you hyping this for five weeks while we were going through this thing? Oh, because all of a sudden you were like, hey, we've got all this footage. Like, you want us to cut that together, too? Well, I think just, you know, the popularity. You know, people are wanting, they, they probably could have played any of those series. They probably could have played from every championship, the clinching game. And we are talking massive numbers. The the desire from the public, the consumer, just to have more of everything Jordan and this Bulls team. Yeah, it, we'll, we will talk about game six as we get towards the end of this episode, because I do want to talk about game six of that 98 finals. But we got to start off with the 1998 Indiana Pacers. That's where the episode nine starts off. We got to see episode eight. We saw the tease, Reggie Miller. This is it. You're going to retire Michael Jordan. Nope, not what happened. Instead, he talked trash to black Jesus and black Jesus never let him forget it. Uh, but Rick, I did want to talk about the 98 Indiana Pacers because this is also Reggie Miller versus the New York Knicks is right around this time. Reggie Miller was... He was that player that I couldn't help but watch the guy, but I couldn't freaking stand Reggie Miller. And it seemed like there was you were on one side or the other. You either loved the guy or you freaking hated him. Which side were you on? I was going to say, you know, it's just funny that you mentioned it that way because I was completely opposite of you. I loved Reggie Miller. I loved everything that he represented. He was that, that shooter's got to shoot. He was a gunslinger. He had that swagger about him. And you're talking about this team here. I, you know, going back to that last championship for the Bulls, to me, that moment was the Eastern Finals. That was where that's where they were going to grab this thing. This, you know, they can say they never in the finals went to a game seven. To me, that was the championship. That that was that moment. Okay, damn. They got over the Pacers, and you really felt like the Pacers were that very you know, that first Bulls team getting over the Pistons. You know, that was going to be their moment. Could they be that next breakout team? They never got to that level. One of the moments inside of the series here that really stood out to me, just not, you know, Reggie's mindset going into this thing. And I really enjoyed how they set up the the calm before the storm between, you know, you see Mike in the suit sitting there two hours before the game in his meditation period, getting ready for war. You go an hour before the game and, you know, the you can just – the visual, the body language from Reggie Miller preparing to take, you know, attempting to take down a Michael Jordan. But how, I mean, that team was so dynamic too for the Pacers. And then the leadership of the, you know, the legend, Larry Bird, the quote that really jumped out to me in these two uh, episodes is Jordan and Bird afterwards. And as Larry's walking away, hey, at least you got time to work on that golf game. <laughs> Yeah, Larry's not even active in the league anymore, and Michael is still talking shit to Larry Bird. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I was work on your golf game. I'm, I was expecting almost throw out there, hey, you owe me a Big Mac. Well, and, and here's what I thought was crazy. I was looking up this 98 Indiana Pacers team, right? And the amount of experience on this team. 
right? You've got Mark West is there. He'd been in the league for 14 years. Rick Smith's had been there for nine years. Chris Mullen for 12 years. Reggie for 10 years. Derek McKee for 10 years. Mark Jackson for 10 years. We don't see that in the modern day NBA where you have a core group of players that are playing together for a decade. Like They make it seem like this was just in that Eastern Conference Finals these two teams were battling every year a half a dozen times. Yeah. And well, I mean, you can even look too. it's, you're talking about the longevity of this team and how long they've been together. That also embeds them into that community. You know, people don't, you know, when you think Indianapolis, you're not thinking of, but it's not that far from Chicago too. I mean, these are two groups that are in their very core, their base are rivals. And there is that hatred. They want it so bad there in Indianapolis to take down Chicago. And you think Larry Bird didn't want to beat Michael Jordan? I mean, come on. Of course he did. Larry would love to have been the guy to take down Michael you, and the Bulls. You almost wonder if, because he still has that fire in him, if that almost drove Larry into coaching. To be able to assemble a team, to assemble a team to go take down Jordan, who essentially shut down the era that he was that he helped build or you know evolve it yeah I, I'm, we're gonna talk about that too because that's something else that really really stood out to me but what did you think of Larry bird as a coach kind of a it's kind of a different question I've never really thought about it because I I never thought that he was that great of a coach obviously I mean you have to have the respect because of the resume and I would probably wonder you know what that could be a documentary inside of itself to go inside, you know, what was someone that was at that level who stands out as one of the all time greats in the league. How does he transition well, to and that it wasn't coaching just position? Larry. I mean, like magic was an awful coach. Well, and we can even look, you know, look at Jordan as a front office personnel guy. It doesn't seem to make that transition, but then you get somebody that was a you know a middle of the pack. And I know we're going to have great, tremendous conversation about him on this on the show. Is a Kerr who makes that transition, who is an incredible coach, who already at this point you would we can make an argument he's probably top five. Well, and we're we're hearing a lot of talk of Jason Kidd getting that head coaching position now. Of course, he's been an assistant coach for years at this point and really paid his dues coming up through it. But it, it seems like those superstar players, it just never seems to translate. And I can understand that. You know, it's because you're, you're that mentality of you is follow me, not essentially listen to me. Yeah, very much so. Uh, one thing that they didn't talk at all about was the United Center. Um, you know, that original trio of championships, uh, when Michael was so dominant and those Bulls teams were so dominant, that all happened in Chicago Stadium, the old Chicago Stadium. And then when Michael was gone, they had put up the United Center. So when Michael comes back, they're playing inside of the United Center. And Rick, I have always heard that Jordan didn't like playing in the United Center. Um, just because it was so big, it was so open, whereas Chicago Stadium had that much more intimate kind of feel. 
Did that stand out to you? Because they talk a lot about the Delta Center on this episode, too, when they're dealing with the Utah Jazz. You see how crazy Indiana was back in the day, and we don't think of them as a hot arena in any way, shape, or form. The hot arena now is Oklahoma City. You know, it's those small markets where you get just those absolutely rabid fans. Golden State, when they were still playing in Oakland. I miss those old stadiums, man. Like, I miss the old Boston Garden. I miss old Chicago Stadium. I miss the Fleet Center. I miss the Key Arena. I mean, that was no place that a visiting team wanted to be when Seattle was rocking. I miss the Forum, for God's sake. I mean, even Staples is just this monster, ridiculous venue. I do kind of miss the old venues. Well, now you're sounding like an old grandpa. I know. I feel like it, too. <laughs> Give me. I remember when. But, yeah, you are you are correct. I mean, but because, I think it's because, you know, early on in the infancy of those arenas, yeah, probably had those feels. It takes time to cultivate, you know, that those feelings. And as you said, where it becomes part of that community. You're talking about some crazy Mormons out there in Salt Lake City. Oh, man. I mean. The intensity to have the team from from Chicago saying the place, you know, even listening to the kids, we hate it. The people in Utah, we just hate it going there. (laughs) It lets you know. But that's what that's what creates, you know, for somebody like the NBA there, you give them that little slice. I mean, we can make the comparison. Look at somebody like St. Louis, which is a larger market, but it's so starved and so hungry. For some kind of sports, they can seriously sink their teeth into. How they, I mean, look they, at, they, they were they XFL, the XFL fans. They're yeah. still talks this week. Talks this week of a potential. I, I wouldn't even say a rebirth because it technically never won anywhere, but that it still might have life breath inside of it. The XFL and the only fan base you hear really making noise is St. Louis. Yeah, leave it to St. Louis. Absolutely crazy. Well, it, go, you know, going back like to the NHL finals. When the Blues were there. Yeah. I mean, how crazy they were for it. You take some of these, you know, they're overlooked at times over your L.A.'s where you got to have a team, whatever sport it is in those major markets. Uh, you, you take somewhere like a Portland, L- Cleveland, Ohio. I mean, where the, the city, Green Bay, your team. I mean, look what it's meant there. I mean, that is that's the blood. It's the lifeline. Well, and it, it's not you're right. It's not even just basketball anymore it's very much found its way into the nfl with these billion dollar stadiums like we're seeing for the raiders now like what's going to be in la jerry world um that new dome down in freaking atlanta as if they needed a new stadium already um but it is different now with everything being so big it puts the fans so far away from the action that it's like home field doesn't necessarily mean as much as it used to. Like nobody wanted to go into the forum and take on Showtime. Nobody wanted to go into Detroit when they were at the palace and and tangle with the bad boy Pistons, the Delta Center, the Fleet Center. It's it's just so different now where home court just doesn't feel like it means anything anymore. Whenever is everything becomes larger and they expand, and I will give credit to Major League Baseball. I feel like when they build their stadiums now, they are looking for that intimacy. They are looking for that fan experience uh, to try to complement, you know, complement the slow style of the game. But I think in any situation that we're talking about, though, it takes generations to establish, you know, that connection. You know, you you taking Quinn 
is going to build something. And then when she takes her kids, she's going to tell the stories of, well, there'll be three generations of you going. And then, you know, when you pass and it'll be, remember when grandpa would come with us. To, and- to go even further, I mean, it really, when you get into minor league baseball and you start getting into these stadiums that have been around for 50, 60 years because they're in a small market where they haven't built a brand new state-of-the-art freaking facility and it's still has those old characteristics. It's one of the things that makes minor league baseball so great. And major league baseball is trying like hell to kill it. But back to the Chicago Bulls, um, Michael wins his fifth MVP. Um, oh, yeah, that, that's what we were talking about. That's something that they need to bring back, by the way. They, they, they need to go back to introducing the MVP right before a playoff game on their home floor. Because that's a really, really cool moment, not only for the player, but also for those fans. The way that they're doing it now, like just with a press conference style, I hate it. So let, let, let's bring that back. Um, and, and then, so we see Chicago take game one, take game two. No big surprise. They go back to Indiana and the award for uh, best uh, pre-victory parade goes to the Indiana Pacers and their fans. How freaking stupid was that? Like, you need to give Michael Jordan motivation. But no, in Game 3, Reggie Miller goes out there and just kills the Chicago Bulls. He has one of those Reggie Miller assassin games where now we see Steph Curry do it, where he could shoot the damn ball from half court, and it was just going in. Reggie was just incredibly hot. Then it goes to Game 4, and we have the Reggie Miller buzzer beater, which is probably the best game in this entire series. But I think what is lost in that is that Michael actually did have a shot. Michael had a shot to put Chicago up three games to one going back into Chicago, and it would have been just absolutely over. But Michael misses the game winner. We, we remember all the ones that he hit, but you know there were a few that he missed here and there. Uh, this is kind of a running theme throughout this entire series, and they don't really highlight it. But if you can pick up on it, there's a lot of big shots he misses, and they come from, and mainly they come from the stripe, where yeah. it is late. So it shows you it, that that human side and how real the game is inside of itself. But when you're talking about somebody of his his magnitude and his uniqueness and his greatness, of course we're going to remember the big ones. I mean, you know, winners write history. You remember those high spots. But there are those little breaks in this thing. And it almost, as they outline each championship, there seems to be a moment there where Mike does miss a big shot. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun watching this back. Then we, uh, we jump backwards in time, and this is where I was really starting to get worried about this format because we go from 98 all the way back to 1997, you know, and, and you have the same team in the finals twice, and things start getting jobbled between which one was 97, which one was 98. But in 1997, we saw the dethroning of the Houston Rockets. It was pretty much the end of the Houston Rockets as we would come to know them when uh, John Stockton hits a big buzzer beater, sends the Jazz into the finals. Carl Malone, the 1997 MVP, and that was Michael's motivation. He always found something. Always found something. We, we heard this with Barkley, too, when they gave Barkley the MVP, and Michael's like, fuck Charles Barkley. How dare you? How dare you go out and have an amazing 82-game season and take take what is rightfully the Kings, Air Jordans. Well, let's 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 go back to the Rockets here real quick, Jorg. I want to ask you this here. How how big do you think that would have been for the league? That that the office wanted it, the Rockets to get to that final, to have that showdown for your teams 
essentially your champions of the 90s. Yeah. And I would have loved to have seen it, too. Uh, there, there's all this talk about how, you know, Michael could have won eight straight. And I just don't think that is the case. Those Bulls teams were exhausted by the end of that three-peat. And we've seen it across all kinds of levels. We've seen it with LeBron going to the finals like nine years in a row. How many freaking minutes did he play? And he was always gassed by the time that he would end up in the finals. We saw it happen to Golden State. Hell, we saw it happen to Golden State when they were 73-9 and and couldn't put away LeBron and the Cavs. I, fatigue is a real thing. When we talk about game six, Jordan is shot. Like that dude has no legs. And then in the final, like 41 seconds, he turns it on. It, you know, it would have been, even if the Bulls could have got through the Rockets in that first matchup, that potential matchup, uh, if everything plays out the same and then they add Clyde, you just got to believe it, one of those two years, the Rockets could have gotten him. But I love how you're presenting this here with the fatigue. And the legs under the team, if they even could have gotten through those two years against the Rockets, I think you see this dynasty end at five championships. Yeah, it falls I think apart. that would have done it. Yeah. Well, and I, I don't think they would have beat that Houston team. I don't think they would have had any answer for Hakeem. Are you... Are you gonna are you gonna give me an old Bill Cartwright or a young Luke Longley against Hakeem Elijah one in his freaking prime? You, know, you you saying that if you would have gone back there and said that Jordan probably would have played center because you just pissed him off. <laughs> yeah, probably, probably. That fucking Michael Jargo says we don't have an answer. Well, you know what? And, and, and I'm playing center. Michael Jordan's the greatest basketball player that ever lived. But you know, I I would love to watch you know Hakeem Elijah one versus a six foot six Michael Jordan in uh, 1994 and watch Michael try to play center against Hakeem. Not happening, bro. <laughs> oh, he was so dominant as well. That I mean, Elijah Wan was just that drop step, another, freaking little hook uh, thing. Another man. world. Damn. The 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 ifs and buts of sports. I mean, that would have been one of the all time dream matchups to see that Bulls team versus Rockets. Let's talk a little bit about Carl Malone, um, and, and really, because I've been watching a lot of like classic NBA games. And Bill Walton absolutely hated Carl Malone. Like, I, I don't know what it was, but like every game that I hear Bill Walton on, Malone has a bad game. And Bill Walton's all, where is Carl Malone? It's absolutely hilarious to me. Um, no, where's Carl Malone? John Stockton sits down. No Carl Malone. Nothing. That... That was a major standout in this because you're you're wanting that perspective, because as big as Barkley was in those early like in his run towards that championship, I mean Malone was that standout. He was the best in the league at that time. Where is his input here? Where is he all around now? I mean, you don't hear a lot from him. You know, you kind of think he would be somebody like a Barkley there. It would fall into one of those analyst spots. Is he just wants to be removed? Is just who he is. What the hell is he doing right now? Where is Carl Malone? Maybe doing that DDP yoga. Uh, also, no Brian Russell. I would have loved to have heard from Brian Russell. You suppose you suppose like Brian Russell was the one guy that was like, you know, fuck Michael Jordan. 
Where? Oh shit! Where was Jerry Sloan? Oh yeah, that's a good one too. Jerry Sloan comes off like so aloof. Like he one of the all time greats, though. Yeah, I don't know, man. I, I I was not a fan of the Utah Jazz. Utah Jazz, like they just bore the shit out of me. Have you, know? you ever been to Utah? No. Thankfully. But I, the thing about the Utah Jazz is it was all pick and roll, stocked into Malone, or a give and go with Hornacek. That was the whole thing. That was their entire offense. You knew exactly what they were going to do. And the only problem was there wasn't anybody in the league that was good enough to stop it. I mean, that that's really what it came down to. And I would have much rather heard from Malone or Brian Russell than John Stockton. John Stockton just does not interest me at all. You know, the vibe of that Jazz team is we're looking about all these, the great finals that they had. Was there ever, like, symbolically more of a white team than Utah? I mean, it was like a throwback to, like, the 50s era of professional basketball. Yeah, even with Carl Malone. That's what I'm saying. I mean, just that representation. I mean, they still, like... I don't think anyone on that team even had shorts that touched their knees. Like they were still rocking the old school, you know, the hip hugging, you know, those kind of sh shorts. Bulls blow out the Jazz in game two. Game three, Carl Malone goes off. He has 37 points. Jazz win. Game four is the big uh, baseball pass stocked into Malone. That that will live on in history. Um, I, I don't know what in the hell the Bulls were doing because that was very – out, out of the norm for Chicago. But that brings us to game five, possibly the most famous game in NBA history. They call it the flu game, even though it's really the food poisoning game. Um, this was when they were still playing 2-3-2. So they're, they're stuck in Utah. Michael Jordan gets Pizza Hut delivery at like 1.30 in the morning. Um, Cowherd actually tracked the guy down and had him on the show. It was absolutely hilarious. Um, so so the flu game, the food poisoning game, whatever the hell you want to call it, I still call it the hangover game. Rick, what, what, what do you remember about the flu game? Well, this series inside itself, when you mentioned the blowout, I remember going, you know, just putting myself back in that moment. To me, the series was over then. Right. So now as we're reliving it here, the flu game never really stood out to me then. And I, I'm wondering if more of that's grown in lore because they needed that hype around it. Because I, well, it helps that Michael has 44 points, right? And it, so when you create those stories and you're you're rewriting that history or that narrative, you're looking for those moments that truly define the greatest of all time. So I mean, that kind of helps towards that, right? But I still remember that season. And I, as we're looking back and remembering all of those finals, this one to me was probably the weakest, at least from a, a fan standpoint. I, I remember going in this thing thinking the Jazz had no chance whatsoever. And I remember even back then when they were talking about those stats, the team that that the Bulls hadn't beaten all season, or maybe they had like one win or something against, was Utah. But when you got to that finals, I had no hope, no faith that the Jazz were going to get this done. And that blowout game, that ended it to me. So I think, you know, they're looking for whatever they can to, you know, support those ratings, to keep people enthusiastic and invested inside this series. Now, I, I got to ask you, though, as a Pizza Hut guy, you love the hut. Pizza's in the name. 
How does that make you feel that they're going out here and, and blasting? I mean, that's that's got to be similar to naming a a, a pandemic after a, a beer. They're damning your you're damning your your slice of the pie. Well, uh, number one, we have to decipher what we actually think happened here. I don't think that Michael Jordan got food poisoning. I don't think that Michael Jordan had the flu. I think Michael Jordan partied too damn hard the night before. And I wouldn't know, know anything about that. E- e- even goats get hangovers, you know? I just, I, I, I've never bought into the, the whole food poisoning thing. That, that always seemed like such a cheap ass cop out to me. And I, I love how they present it too. Five guys show up. I mean, you, you got like this mafia sort of pizza yeah, and, delivery. And, and, and the guy that Cowherd had on, it was like, yeah, it was me and one of my buddies. It was not uncommon for the Bulls to like call up and order pizza because they, they were the only place open. And it, here's inside of this. How do they exactly know where this is going? Right. It's not like, hey, a uh, local pizza in Utah. Oh, it's Michael Jordan's pizza. <laughs> yeah, right. Like they knew it was for Jordan. I mean, come right. on. Come on. Uh, then they go into the Steve Kerr thing. Um, and and that brings another question. Why are actually the delivery people walking up to his hotel door? Yeah. I mean, shouldn't right. that- <laughs> I mean b- because it's all bullshit, dude. That's, that's, that's what it is. I, I have a feeling, you know, me and you were in Chicago at Starcast. I can understand, you know, if, if we ordered food, but I still got to believe that they would probably have some, like a hotel clerk bring that to us. Yes, absolutely. Especially if your name is Michael Jordan. I mean, get, come on. You think Gus would have let that happen? Come on. Come on. Well, you did pick up that cheeseburger in the hallway. There is that. Uh, let's talk about Steve Kerr. Uh, they, they go into the Steve Kerr story. And Rick, this is a story that is one of those things that my brain just forgot. I remembered hearing about this when it happened, but there's one thing that has become overblown in history, and that's how good Steve Kerr was. Steve Kerr was not that great of a player for the Chicago Bulls. He was a spot-up shooter. Uh, He averaged six points for his career. He averaged six points a game. During this season, he averaged seven points a game. Uh, I'm going to disagree with you. And I think what really makes it stand out and what's the pros for what I'll present, which makes him such a great player, is exactly what you're saying. And he and he perfectly explains it himself. He might get five shots in a game, but they're going to be damn important shots. And, And we see this. This is absolutely hilarious to me. All right. When you go back to the 1997 season. Steve Kerr averaged 7.5 points a game in 23 minutes. All right. When you go to 1992 and you look at John Paxson's stats, he averaged 24.6 minutes a game and seven points. Steve Kerr and John Paxson are basically the same human being, and they played basically the same exact role for those Chicago Bulls inside of the triangle. I'm not even ripping on Steve Kerr. I just think that there is like this this overblown notion that Steve Kerr was like this all-star player when he was in his prime and and that's just revisionist history. No, I you're I think you're you're so into those numbers, but we got to talk about the moment of those numbers. What was created Absolutely. around that? 
And that's what stands out to me. And I love how they they kind of put the spotlight on Kerr a few points through this thing. I think it, he represents this tremendous bridge between a modern era and then and a work ethic and what you can be. Not everyone in the world can be a Michael Jordan. But you can have that drive, that energy, all that fire within you, and you can contribute in different ways. We were talking uh, about coaches and legacies and how you make that connection between those two. And you look at someone who's done it so magnificently as a Kerr. You know, what really stood out to me in, inside of his, you know, where he shined in these episodes was that message. You might only have a few shots in life, but sure as hell, make them count and make them big. And that will be your legacy. I feel like I'm ripping on Steve Kerr, and I like Steve Kerr, aside from his left-wing bullshit. Um, but they, they they get into the story of Malcolm Kerr. Do you I think that's a gimmick, too. Do you remember when this whole thing with Malcolm Kerr and Beirut happened? This is one of those things inside of the series uh, that... I don't know if I'm with, you know, on the line you are of, I just forgotten about it, but I have a feel I had no idea about this side, this story, everything that unfolded here. It may have been a little bit bigger too, because I get WGN, like it was a local station. You know what I mean? Like the bulls were a local market team. We're technically in a Chicago, Kansas city market. So I may have just seen more press coverage of it than you did. But like, I remember it being a big story, but I couldn't have even told you that it was Steve Kerr's dad. Like it, it just seemed so outrageous at the time. And people weren't that into Steve Kerr. Well, I don't think, you know, really at that time, did, did anyone know who he is? I mean, you're talking about a guy, even, you know, through his own words here, doesn't have a deal until, you know, the final hour for a, a scholarship and just because Arizona offers anything, he, he accepts it without even doing a campus visit. And it is at this point, and maybe probably what you remember is not even the name Kerr, but the situation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and now I remember why I saw it on ESPN. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it was clearly because of the Steve Kerr connection, but yeah, just a crazy, crazy story. But then they get into the game six, Steve Kerr buzzer beater to uh, win themselves the fifth championship. And down go the poor, poor Utah Jazz. Yeah, that's that, that that's most of uh, the episode. Except we go back to the Pacers in game seven, the 98 Eastern Conference Finals, and we get to meet Gus. Gus is the thing of legend. And I don't know what it is about guys named Gus, but guys named Gus typically end up the head of security. Have you ever noticed that? Like, there's a lot of security guys named Gus. But Gus was with Michael Jordan, and after James Jordan passed away, Gus pretty much became a father figure to Michael. Um, I, I'm sure that Michael pushed for this to be inside of the documentary, um, getting the interviews with Gus's wife. She looks like she has been very well taken care of over the course of the years for somebody living off of a security guard salary. Um, Rick, I, I thought this was a cool story, but I, I did feel like we were kind of filling some time here. Well, you know, Gus is to security as Jeeves is to a butler. But, it, you know, as you had mentioned, you know, they're looking for what content do they have? They're making they're trying to look for those um, those emotional reaches. 
uh, those connections in this episode. And uh, I think maybe that it wasn't too much dedicated towards it. I think there's what it does is reinforce the importance of the strength inside of, of Jordan's, you know, his core is that family. And that he was looking for that connection. He was looking for someone to fill the shoes of the loss of his father. And, you know, what he had there with Gus and what he represented. And you do have to really believe, though, is, you know, even that moment where he where Jordan grabs the ball and presents it to Gus there, you know, that last time. He wanted to put instead of Jordan, I think more so going into this, not so much about protecting Jordan's brand and himself, that this was kind of him giving back to others as well. In whatever Jordan kind of way that he possibly could. So that brings us to the break. We'll throw it over to a word from our friends at the Brosters, and we'll be right back to talk episode 10, the last episode. We'll be right back. Bro, if you're a real coffee lover, then you've got to try Brosters Limited Edition Vince Russo Bro Coffee. Available right now at www.thebroasters.com. This limited edition coffee is fresh roasted weekly and shipped directly to your door. You will love the Nicaraguan blend with roasted chocolatey notes when you smell it. Get your Vince Russo Bro Coffee today at thebroasters.com and follow them at Coffee Broasters today on Twitter. Enjoy the best coffee today, bro. From Broasters, Vince Russo Brand, and Hameen Media Group. All right, Huckleberry. So episode 10. Um, all the notes that I have from episode 10 are basically just the finals in 98 and then the fallout. Um, what did you make of episode 10? Did this feel like a good conclusion to the entire thing for you? Yeah, you know, like, and now knowing about you know how rushed they were, they're just trying to get this final piece out here. Uh, I, in the moment, I was satisfied. You know, I'm thinking, you know, this is a nice wrap up. And it, but it, as we talked about and alluded towards before, it leaves the door open for more, and that's what you want out of this series. Uh, personally speaking, you know, I I couldn't put this thing over enough. You know, everywhere I go, anyone I talk to, anyone that's a, a sports fanatic. You know, this is must see. I cannot remember the last time I've really been enthralled and just wrapped up inside of a series, any kind of programming special like this, as I've been with The Last Dance. Yeah, yeah, it's really, really good. If you haven't seen it, I don't know why you're listening to this show, but yeah, go watch it. Uh, let's talk about Zen Master Phil. Um, Phil Jackson kind of stole this entire episode to me. Um, it, it, it's funny that the Michael Jordan documentary, and now I want like a 10 part series about Phil Jackson. Um, number one, I want, like said, a, I want like a reality program. Just Phil. Yeah. Right. This should be the Dr. Phil that we praise. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so we get the big powerful moment with Phil at the end of the season, at the end of the episode. But at the beginning of the episode, as they're getting ready to go out for the Utah game, right, for game one, and they're showing Phil in the locker room and they're going over what they're going to do, he doesn't seem very Zen master to me. Did he seem very Zen master to you? He's like, you know, don't 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 be out there and take shit from these guys. Like, you know, and it's just like, whoa, Phil, like, I, I, I figured you'd be talking like some deep kind of philosophical, like crazy shit. But no, it's don't don't go out there and take shit from these guys. 
I think this this more speaks to just the attitude towards Utah itself. I mean, that you even get the Zen Master out of his game. Now now it's very personal. No one likes these mountain-dwelling assholes, these Mormons out here. They just want to take them down. Uh, one of the things that stood out, I can't remember the exact like line, but there's somewhere, I'm overly paraphrasing on this one, where Jordan was even like somewhere in all oh, this Zen bullshit. <laughs> like He's already like talking towards it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, just, I think Phil throughout this series and they, they planted those seeds so early. He's someone in there that they, I don't want to say exactly Easter eggs, but you really got to watch to the detail throughout this entire documentary to pick up everything and how, how Phil is the glue and really how he was the, you know, the engineer on this thing and how he took care and drove this ship. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, also making their first appearance, uh, clearly somebody heard my tirade about Jordan's family on, on the show last week, and and now we get Michael and Marcus and Jasmine, all of the all the kids show up and and have a few words about their dad, um, and and that's all that we see of them. And good looking kids. And in the entire ten part series, that's all we see of them. It just kind of felt out of place at this point. I think you, you want to have them there. And as we were talking about, you know, this is Jordan's opportunity to kind of to give back. And he wants to highlight those people as we've regularly talked about, you know, just through the reviews and it's illustrated throughout the, the documentary, how hard it is to be Michael Jordan. Well, that's just, that doesn't end with Michael Jordan. That's the family. So you have to really think about those things when they go to school in their lives how much they have to be sheltered or how much, you know, that they experience the, if it's ridicule, praise, whatever it might be, they've ultimately have never asked to be in that position yet just by association because of their father, they're tremendously impacted by it. Okay. So, and and how much do they remember? They're so young then, right? You know, it seems that, you know, these two years against the jazz, this might be what they remember. So before we run through games one through six, I got I got to bring up this Michael Jordan topic to you, because this is just one of the most bizarre things that I can remember in pop culture. Michael Jordan is a star of the 90s, right? Because everything about Michael Jordan, he's an 80s star. Like everything about Michael Jordan is very 80s. He became a star in the 80s. He rose to prominence in the 80s. The whole Be Like Mike thing was in the 80s. The Spike Lee commercial was in the 80s. The rise of the Jordan brand was in the 80s. He's like an 80s pop icon who is relevant all throughout the 90s. Like, There's nothing about Michael Jordan and pop culture that relates to the 90s other than the Chicago Bulls. Well, championships, the yeah, king, just, you know, the, so the, the arrival. Me. I'm like, even I'm watching how he's dressed, walking into a game in 1998, and he looks like he's walking into a game in 1988. Well, do, do we, I love that you bring this up. I mean, this inside of itself, this is actually pretty fascinating, you know, comparisons with extended conversation we could have on this thing. When you talk about 90s, obviously, I I guess to my main point is I don't think you had those blurred lines that we have today where 
politics and pop and all these different parts of our society blur together. I think back then you had to find lines because I, I don't think of the crossover appeal between, you know, music, which then was the grunge period and the transition of politics and how we viewed things as more of a, an aggressive and bloodthirsty society. They all had their different spots and sport had its own spot. So he absolutely, Michael Jordan then defined sport at that period. As you've said, icon. I mean, we're talking about someone through the, through the 90s was one of the most recognizable faces on the planet. And when I say that, I'm putting that in the likes of like with a Jesus Christ of going off to some minute area that might not have ever seen a basketball and you start showing pictures and they say, Oh, Michael Jordan. We, we, we saw it when you know, the dream team documentary, when they were in Barcelona, we saw it early on in the documentary when they went to France and it was basically Beatlemania and Jordan couldn't walk anywhere. I mean, it, it's still that way today. It's not like Michael Jordan can just like, you know, go out with the family and go have dinner. You know, he's got to buy out the entire freaking restaurant if he wants to do that. What I think, too, when Jordan was so unique in that sense, when he really cultivated his brand, it was almost a tunnel vision. It was about the brand and basketball, where now you see these megastars like a a LeBron James, where he starts dipping into other forms. And, And I know Jordan did the Space Jam, but that was still kind of in that tunnel and it was but such a one-off LeBron where he's i guess as i talk about it out loud because you had jordan you could say in fashion i mean the guy is a, a fashion icon inside of itself with the with the shoe yeah but, but really it, all he did that was, was never shoes. i know but that was never the focal point where now you feel like you have these stars that are dipping their toes openly into these other pools where jordan made it he brought those things into his pool yeah, it's just it's it's crazy to think about, but but really think about it. Like all the memories of Michael Jordan are on the basketball court. You know, it's it's just crazy to me, absolutely crazy. Well, you know that that drove the ship. That was the the fire inside of the steam engine. But as we're talking about though, his true greatness was made by all these different things that he brought into that bubble. Yep. Yeah, I mean, he has more in common with Michael Jackson than really anybody from the 90s when you, when you think of, like, pop culture icons. I would say if, and, and, and as you say that, Jargo, we're putting those two up there as our pop icons of the 90s, and even Michael Jackson was defined in the 80s. That's Exactly, that's what I'm saying. Like, when you look for a similarity, the closest thing I could think of would be Michael Jackson. Who, who would you say, as we're talking about individuals that truly define the 90s? Kurt Cobain uh, is the first one say, that comes to mind. Uh, to, well, the first one to me would be Jordan. I, I have Cobain, Kurt Cobain in there. Uh, Michael Jackson, Kurt Cobain, and probably Bill Clinton. Yeah. Bill Clinton. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that's about it. When I really think of pop culture icons. I'm just going to, I just say icons that, and and you look at all those individuals we listed, they cross the boundaries of their genre. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They got over. They actually got over. That's what being over means. Uh, And and Hulk Hogan. (laughs) Well, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about him here in just a second too. 
That 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 rat bastard. He he wears his ugly head. Uh, so let's kind of run through the series. Game one in Utah because Utah had home court for this series. Game one goes to Utah, 88-85 in overtime. Like people can tell me how great the nineties were, eighty-eight, eighty-five in overtime. I mean, game five is eighty-three, eighty-one. Yeah, it was not uncommon to see games in the eighties at that point. I'll take my games in the one twenties anytime. Just saying. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you know, when you look at these, it's about that battle, and we're talking about the legs that you've got under you and what it took up and down those floors each and every night, the intensity on both ends, how hard they banged and their bodies were beaten to get to this point in the finals. Both of these teams, what do you have left? I mean, you're at this point, who's got more fumes in the tank? That's what this, you're talking about grabbing a championship, claiming that crown. This is absolutely who wants it more. Game two goes to Chicago. So they split one, one. Game three in Chicago, Chicago just absolutely routes Utah. 96-54. I went and found that game. It's crazy how bad the Utah Jazz are in that game. Does this Is this still a stat to this day? Yeah. It's still the lowest score that any team has put out during the any, NBA Finals. Any game. And, and it's crazy that when you go back and watch it, it doesn't seem like it. It's just, you know, like they keep shooting and the shots don't go in. You know, it's it just like, like there they was had a tra- an, it was like there was a trash can lid on top of the. Hoop. Yeah, it was just a horrible, horrible night. After game three, Rodman goes to Nitro. Rodman skips practice and goes to Nitro because he's got to get ready to work alongside his tag team partner, Hollywood Hulk Hogan. Against Diamond Dallas Page and a partner of his choosing at Bash at the Beach 98. We are in June of 98 right now. As the finals are going on and this is all happening, Bash at the Beach is July 12th. Bash at the Beach happened less than 30 days after the NBA finals ended. Of course, we now know that... DDP's tag team partner would end up being none other than Carl Malone of the Utah Jazz. Finally gets his hands on Dennis Rodman. Um, Rick, this was absolutely insane at the time. Do you remember the the negative backlash from the sports world? I don't. I, I mean, I'm putting myself you there. Don't? As, no, I'm putting myself there as an ultra mark. You know, it's his the prime of our fandom and professional wrestling. I just remember just popping so much. To me, this was the greatest thing, but I do not recall the backlash of, Oh my God, he missed the practice. Well, and this is basically the end of Rodman. Like Rodman's around for a while after this, but this is pretty much the end of Dennis Rodman. Well, I think I think Rodman even knew this with, with the dynasty breaking up, this being, you know, truly the last dance. I think he knew there wasn't, there wasn't a spot for him with this franchise going forward. He had his bit part here. We we talk about Kerr and the importance of those big shots and being that role player. That's exactly what Rodman contributed here. He just had that over the top personality, you know, so he stood a little, you know, he shined a little brighter in the time. 
I wonder though, I know when now recently we've had some comments from Eric Bischoff talking about, you know, yeah, Robin was out there. He was antagonizing this. How deep in was Malone already at this point and just said, Hey man, let me get through this finals where he was truly focused. I am the MV, you know, an MVP. I am the star of this team. My main goal is to take down Michael Jordan. Then I'll come do this with you. In order for anything that happened on the basketball court to have been a work, Carl Malone and Dennis Rodman would have had to have been in on it together. Here's the problem with that. Carl Malone and Dennis Rodman don't like each other. They don't like each other at all. They were getting into it this entire series. Now, I do think it's smart for Eric Bischoff to claim that because, as we all know, controversy creates cash. And you can bet your ass that since he said that, people have not only went back and watched like game six, like we did the other night, but they're also going back on the WWE Network and they're looking up those episodes from Nitro and that makes Bischoff look good, even if it's complete and utter bullshit. But I just I, I cannot believe for one second that Carl Malone and Dennis Rodman were in on a work together for WCW. Well, you know, the world of professional wrestling is a, is a weird and strange place where craziness comes together. So there could have been some kind of bridge, uh, an agent we don't know about, some common ground, a friend. That's what I'm curious about. You're talking about how you know, Bischoff now puts himself into this hotbed. Absolutely a brilliant move by Easy e there. Uh, it, as you're talking about this, I'm looking forward to that release of the podcast with him and Conrad, where they're going to lay this whole thing out. Who can they who can they get to bring in for that episode to sit there and recall and retell how this whole thing came together? Maybe they can find Carl Malone since nobody else can seem to. Guess he's living in Montana somewhere. Uh, Jordan misses the game winner in game five. Jazz right win. next door to right next door to Bischoff. <laughs> there you go. Jordan misses the game winner in game five. Jazz take it 83-81. And then we get to game six, June 14th in Chicago. And the Bulls win 87-86. Rick, we just got to see this game. Um, And and the biggest story of this game was Scottie Pippen. And I have gave Scottie Pippen a lot of shit throughout this series. Um, But Scottie Pippen balled up during game six on June 14th of 1998, he played 25 minutes and 43 seconds. And that dude's back was wrecked. I'm talking Shawn Michaels, WrestleMania 14 wrecked and Scottie Pippen somehow went out there and, and played a basketball game. You know, and, and now watching back and in, inside the documentary and then the, the movie that we see showing the game. I it just, you can tell, I mean, the uncomfortableness, I mean, the, the excruciating pain he is at just to get up and down that floor. Well, and it's crazy because the announcers knew it and Ahmad Rashad immediately, knew it. immediately put it over. As soon as he comes down, they go to it. Yeah. And Costas is putting it over like crazy. I knew it. You knew it. The announcers knew it. How did Jerry Sloan not know it? That's what I don't understand. Like we put over Jerry Sloan as this like legendary coach and shit. But the problem with Jerry Sloan is the same problem with Bill Belichick. Jerry Sloan was all about the system. It was all about the system and they didn't change anything. And they just did it the way that they do it. 
And yeah, I mean, why would why wouldn't you go out and attack that back? Why wouldn't you put Carl Malone and just keep switching until he ends up on Scottie Pippen and Malone just drives his ass to the hole every time? Or I mean, go down the bench to you know and ex- take him out the the tenth the twelfth guy. Your job is to go in there and get Pippen out of this game. Yeah, I, 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 I just and and then he's like going to the back, <laughs> you know. It's like, how how is this happening? Can you can you imagine if a weakness a weakness like that was exposed to going back to the early years with those bad boy teams? Oh my god! I mean, Pippen probably he wouldn't even be walking out of there; they'd be stretching him out, air carrying him out of there. Absolutely ridiculous. Scottie Pippen plays twenty six minutes in this game. Um, the the thing that's amazing to me is Scotty's in that much pain. He played 45 minutes of game five and he played 46 minutes of game four. And then finally by game six, he's just had it. So Michael knows going into this game. And not even, you know, the back and forth, just him walking from the training room to the, to the court. I mean, just that extra, just exertion effort that he's putting out there. Michael knows going into the game. He has to do this thing. It's going to be on his shoulders. Unquestionably, it's going to be on his shoulders. Him and Tony Kukoc. And how much are you going to rely on Tony Kukoc if you're Michael Jordan? You're not. So Jordan plays 44 minutes, has 45 points. The Bulls only score 87 points. Jordan has 45 of them. He has one assist and one rebound. And Jordan is gassed. Jordan missed 19 shots during this game. And Rick, as I'm watching this back the other night during game six of the movie, if I would have like adjusted the tent on my TV, this was a Kobe Bryant game. You know, as much as we talk about Kobe Bryant wanted to be Michael Jordan in this game, Michael Jordan is playing like Kobe Bryant. He's like, give me the ball. No, I'm not going to fucking pass it. I'm just going to keep on shooting. Everybody on my back. Here we go. Tony Kukoc is the, the number two scorer for the Bulls with 15 points. This, to me, this is what I really enjoyed about. We're talking about how they tie things together, bringing us to this moment inside of the documentary. And we've heard regularly if it's, you know, if it is a Tony Kukoc, if it's a Scottie Pippen, if it's a Paxson, if it's a Kerr. We continually hear about the unselfishness where he realizes I can pass the ball. I can give someone else that moment. And I think it's summed up perfectly in this, this situation right here. Everything coming together inside the documentary about Michael Jordan when Rodman puts out there at this point, we knew he ain't passing that fucking ball. <laughs> yeah. Like he went he went straight Mamba mentality. This this was the birth of the Mamba mentality. It was just that Kobe didn't know it yet. But Michael Jordan goes full on Kobe Bryant. The final 41 seconds goes like this. Jordan hits a layup. At the other end of the floor, Jordan makes a steal on Carl Malone on a stupid switch play that they've been running the entire finals. And somehow Carl Malone didn't know that Michael Jordan was there. Jordan steals the ball, comes back down, pushes Brian Russell out of the way, and hits a big shot to win the game. And immediately, Bob Costas, who was fantastic for all of Game 6, says if that was the final shot of Michael Jordan, it had just won him the championship. Like, Bob Costas understood in the moment the moment that was going on. Rick, that, that final 41 seconds is just incredible. And they start panning the crowd 
in game six of the movie and that you're just looking at a stunned Delta Center. It's incredible. Crazy stat that they shared on the Scott Van Pelt uh, Sports Center episode following this thing. The Bulls were one in 20 that season when trailing under 44 seconds left in the game. That's crazy. Absolutely crazy. What do you think? Did, did, did he push Russell out of the way? I, I've seen you do. You, you still are no pun intended pushing, pushing this ammo, pushing this conspiracy. I'm not buying in here, Michael oh, Jargo. I'm not on. buying into this. That was just a sweet ass move. He shook him out of his shoes. It was. He, and he absolutely did. And then he pushed him the rest of are, the way. Are you going to tell me, Michael Jargo? You or any other human being that has donned the stripes and the whistle has the balls to make that call in that moment. You know what? I I actually made that comment to Carly. Carly and I watched this entire thing together. And at one point they call traveling on Michael Jordan. And I was like, how in the fuck are you going to call traveling on Michael Jordan in game six of the NBA finals? Come on. Come on. Payola. So they do get into the fallout, the breakup of the dynasty. Rodman is gone. Kerr is gone. Pippen is gone. And we we get the entire diatribe of Michael wanted the chance to go for seven. Phil Jackson's like, nope, screw it. I'm out. Jordan ends up retiring again. We get the uh, very nice uh, comments from Jerry Reinsdorf about being a, a cheap, selfish fuck. Um, of course, nothing from Jerry Krause. God rest his fat ass soul. Um, Rick, number one, do you buy into this whole Michael wanted the chance at seven or is this revisionist history? I think I think it is more revisionist as you're sitting now in this moment. And immediately my thoughts went to. This was the perfect way to end this thing. I mean, you really ride off into the sunset as the heroes. Would we be remembering the Bulls so fondly if they come back? Uh, and I, I love how they present this because you got to believe. I mean, even with those those old horses, the next season was a shortened season. Yeah, fifty games. Could they have made that run? Had those legs get through those fifty? No. Even if even beyond that, if they come back for another year. No way. Do do we revisit? Do we remember so fondly if our last image of that team is leaving that court as losers? I, I know the old, you know, the montage and the the frame of thought is you play until you're removed from the court. I think this is the perfect way to do this. I do think that if they would have brought the team back, that they would have made it to the finals. Because in that shortened season, it was the eight-seeded Knicks that ended up making it to the finals. They took out one-seeded Indiana in the first round of the playoffs. Knicks make it all the way to the finals, um, and then but they would fall to the San Antonio Spurs. And I think that Spurs team would have just plain beat up Michael and the Bulls by that point. I mean, you have to remember Jordan had been playing four thousand minutes a season. For the last three years, Jordan was gassed. That Bulls team was gassed. Um, Rodman was not coming back. Rodman only played another 35 games in his entire career 
after game six of the NBA finals. Uh, Pippen was never the same. Um, Even when he went to Portland, when he was in Houston, he was never the same player that he was after that back injury. I don't think that they could have replaced the offensive production and more importantly, the defensive production. Remember, in, in the first go-round, they had Horace Grant. In the second go-round, they had Dennis Rodman. There was nobody out there that you could have replaced Dennis Rodman with. And you're going to have to pay Scottie Pippen $17 million, and Jerry Reinsdorf is a cheap fuck. I think inside of that, too, that's that's really what shuts this down. Not even the, the potentials, the possibilities on the floor. It comes to financials. Uh, you've got, you're going to lose your head coach. I don't think there's any scenario where you get the Zen master back. I, I actually don't think there's any scenario even, you know, in revisiting this, even where, where Jordan's talking about, Oh, Scotty would be on board. I think in that moment, you really live that situation. There is no way in hell he is coming back. Nope. I don't think so. I don't think so. And like you mentioned, the 99 season was a shortened season because there was the lockout. Um, And I don't think that Jordan wanted any part to do with that. So Jordan retires. Phil takes the year off. Um, I've always felt like the deal was in place for Phil to go to the Lakers before he left the Chicago Bulls. I've always thought that. And he just didn't want to come back for the 99 season, but he does come back for the following season. Um, And then, of course, I, I, I look forward to episodes 11 and 12 next week. Um, when we get, you know, the episode about Wizards Jordan and uh, then we get the episode about owner Jordan, um, neither one of which have went nearly as well as uh, this run with the Chicago Bulls. It's it's about those transitions when you, when you take yourself from that court and try to make that move. Uh, they're just a different beast. Jordan was right the first time when he said that he wanted to walk away two years before the game left him. He should have just left it in ninety eight. I mean, there were there were flashes. There were flashes of Michael Jordan in in a Wizards uniform, but that was much more about getting his foot in the door as an owner because they offered him part ownership in the team when he went to Washington. That's what that was all about to begin with. Absolutely. Well, that's the mindset, but there's still that down in your soul, in your core. What makes him that alpha? And that probably had to be one of the hardest things, the realizations that he had to come to was that you physically, you you just can't do that. And I think that speaks more to life that we all are going to face that at some point. And he's Michael fucking Jordan. He's the goat. Is there any question? I mean, like, I know that you're there in Ohio. Like, do do you have these LeBron people that are trying to make this case for LeBron being the goat, even after watching this documentary? Yeah, she's you know, there's different individuals out there and and to me the always that argument and, and it's a great jumping in point is to compare numbers because there's something real, they're physical, they're a, a that true measuring, that measurement. But you and I were talking earlier this week, when we're talking about those that separate themselves that be that cross lines and become absolutely icons outside of their own genre, whatever that might be, there's those intangibles that you can't absolutely define by numbers. 
and what they truly mean to our society. We're talking about an individual, Michael Jordan, 20 years past this, these moments that we're talking about, and yet he still remains so relevant around the globe and so impactful and so important inside society, no matter what it might be. That's what separates individuals like that. That drive, that that motivation, he embodies all of that stuff. Now, I don't, to go up to your point here, you know, who, who is it? Who is the GOAT? Who's whatever it might be? I, the hell with that. Those individuals, they're on their own level here. But yes, I do agree with you. Michael Jordan, hands down, unquestionably, the greatest basketball player, I would say the greatest professional athlete that we've seen. Oh, that one, that one I, would take some. I'd have that's to the conversation. That. I think that's the bigger conversation, not the basketball player. We need to broaden those rides, and we're talking about who is that biggest icon in sports. I'd have to think on that one. Um, to, to me, the comparison is always going to be between Michael and Kobe. Uh, if you want to talk about LeBron, it's LeBron is much closer to Magic than he will ever be to Michael Jordan. Um, but yeah, I, I think on I think on that front. Let's wait five, eight, ten years after LeBron's career has ended. Well, and that's the thing. Then have those comparisons. That's the thing. Because Michael Jordan was great. And this documentary absolutely proves how great Michael Jordan was. But the myth of Michael Jordan is so much greater than even how great Michael Jordan was. Like, we remember all the game-winning shots. We don't remember the ones that he missed. They're just completely irrelevant. Michael Jordan was worried that people were going to think that he wasn't a good person, that he was an asshole. He was doing the media circuit before this came out, and instead, we have embraced Michael Jordan even more because it's nice to see an alpha male just not apologize for being an alpha male. Even still at 40 years old, we still want to be like Mike. You know, Jordan's 55. We still want to be like Mike. We all want a glass of Hennessy and a cigar that's probably worth more than I'm going to make this year. I, I you know, to speak to that, uh, there, after watching this series and, and just the, the body language, the attitude, the vibe that you get from Michael Jordan, I would, the most I've been motivated in a long time is waking up on Monday mornings. You know, I get to sit down inside the Monday locker room now with with Ben and Dr. Man Beast. But just that motivation, that hunger there, uh, it's very comparable to, you know, another brother of our here on the on the platform that is a great motivator like that's Stevie Richards. I mean, you, you sit there and listen to Stevie. Damn, I could run through a fucking wall. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, that's what you get. You get that kind of personality, that leadership. So when it's, you just can't help, you want to follow who do you, this just kind of popped in my mind was we're talking about LeBron as moving, as motivating, inspiring as this series is. I bet you there's no one going out there and working fucking harder right now than LeBron James. He wants on that floor to go out there and shut us up for what we just said about the goat. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Argument, you know, absolutely. But he can't and he never will. Because even if he overtakes how great Michael Jordan was, he'll never live up to the myth of Michael Jordan. That image that we have in our minds when it's pushing Bill out of the way, 
hitting the big shot at the end. If it's, you know, the shot against Cleveland at the beginning of his career, all you motherfuckers going home. If it was the dunk contest, like we, we have all these images in our mind just on recall of Michael Jordan. And when you hit the, the recall on LeBron James, you get all other kinds of shit. You get the meltdowns on the court. You get the decision. You get the teaming up with the super teams. Like There's all this bad stuff that comes to mind with the greatness of LeBron. And there's just nothing bad that comes to mind about Michael. Even outside of that, that's what, you know, as we're closing out here, I want to ask you here, is it even possible to create a brand that Jordan has in you know today's society, the way that we operate here? As we're talking about LeBron, if I say... I'm out to lunch with my dad and his friends, and I say, LeBron, this. This is coming from upper upper class, 60-year-old white guys, white-collar jobs, management, business owner types. I say, LeBron, you know what they say? They say, fuck that liberal. Yeah. There's it one has guy. nothing to do. Nothing to do with basketball. There's one Their guy. Their whole opinion of LeBron is based around with the statements he makes in politics. There's you don't one see guy, that with Jordan. There's one guy that stands out. There's been one guy that has made a brand that could rival Michael Jordan and will be remembered in that same vein as Michael Jordan. It's the great one. If you smell what the rock is cooking. It's the most electrifying man in all of entertainment. Dwayne the Rock Johnson. I don't know how he did it, especially coming from the world of professional wrestling, but he has done it. The Rock is, he's, he's reached that icon level. Uh, as we were talking about the most recognizable faces on the, you know, on the globe, uh, in researching that, I wanted to make sure that I was accurate because I know I'd heard that back in the day, but look, actually looking it up, uh, The Rock is there now. Yeah, I believe it. I don't know how he's done it. Fucking Rocky sucks. No, I. The, it's like names like uh, I mean, like Jesus, Gandhi, Michael Jackson, Michael Jordan, and The Rock. Yeah, it's insane. It's insane. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Huckleberry. That's gonna. Oh, break. and Kim Kardashian. Oh, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> That's gonna wrap things up for Running with the Bulls. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't yet, please hit that subscribe button. Then visit the other platform that you may not be listening to, whether it be the HTM Podcast Network online, hittingthemarks.com, Hameen Media online, hackerhameen.podbean.com. Find me across all social media platforms at NotJargo. Find the new podcast at DestinoPod if or when Billy Ray Valentine decides that he wants to lift the restrictions on New Japan Pro Wrestling. Um, but, you know, we, we can talk about all kinds of crazy shit, all kinds of crazy stuff going on in stardom. Yeah, who am I kidding? I'm not going to talk to anybody. Huckleberry, how do the peeps, the freaks, and the geeks keep up with you? Well, as always, you can keep up with me, uh, Rick Vickery, across all social media platforms at The Real RBV, and right here on the Hameen Media Group each and every Monday inside the locker room with Ben Hameen, Dr. Man Beast, Ted McNailer, uh, also on Tuesdays at the Hot Tag WrestleCast. And my states are opening back up. I, my state never really closed. I mean, it's Iowa. Like, we go outside to look at tornadoes and shit. Like, we're afraid of some fucking tornadoes. People that are taking cross-country road trips drive around Iowa. They intentionally avoid it. Yeah, well, that's not true because Interstate 80 runs right through Iowa. 
And if you're taking a road trip, chances are you're getting on it. You, you drive around it. We'll catch you on the floor.